Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for the blessing of this Lord's Day, a day in which we as Your people may gather together as Your temple and worship You. We thank You for the blessing of this church. We thank You for the blessing of this class. We thank You for the opportunity to be able to study the Proverbs. We ask that we continue, as we continue to study the topic of righteousness and the wicked, uh, that You would guide and direct us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> okay, so on, your, on the table, you should, have, should find a, a handout and uh, just a, a brief review, and I mean very brief, uh, that uh, we have looked at what are the characteristics of the righteous. And in looking at that, of course, we have seen conversely what are the characteristics of the wicked. Uh, but we looked at uh, characteristics of the righteous being that they pursue righteousness, they speak righteously, they're remembered as a blessing, they rest secure, show compassion, consider their neighbor's welfare, hate falsehood, give beyond their time and benefit, give sincerely, exercise justice, give generously, courageous, joyful, Consider the needy, exercise discernment, and they are hated for their righteousness. And so all of that, uh, again, just in terms of a, 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 a subjective, topical study of the Proverbs on this topic, summarizes what we've looked at up until this point. Now, you can see that this is part four of the study, and this actually will be uh, a topical study that has the most parts uh, that we've studied in studying the Proverbs. And part of the reason is because there are so many Proverbs that deal with the righteous. Um, it is, I think, and I, I could be wrong, and you may correct me, but I think it is actually, uh, there are more verses in referencing the righteous than any other verses in the Proverbs. So if you know differently, I really would, seriously would like to know, uh, but by my count, I believe that that's correct. And so we should expect then to see a lot of variety in what the Proverbs have to, have to say about that. And so what I have done is because our list was getting rather lengthy on the characteristics of the righteous, I've now changed it ever so slightly to ask the question, how does God bless the righteous? How does God bless the righteous? And let's begin here on your handout. God blesses the righteous with stability. With stability. But you'll see here I'm differentiating between point one and point two. The first kind of stability we're talking about is of place and home. And we've actually got several Proverbs that deal with this. Proverbs 2, 21 through 22. For the upright will inhabit the land, and those with integrity will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the land, and the treacherous will be rooted out. Okay, so a couple of points to note before we dive into this specific proverb. Uh, we must understand uh, that when we look at a, an Old Covenant text, uh, notably uh, in wisdom literature, land can either mean 
the, the land that was promised to the children of Israel, but it can also be used metaphorically uh, to an inhabited area. Uh, and so whether this is dealing specifically with the land or metaphorically, we know that we can transfer this uh, into, from a new covenant perspective, uh, into it referring to a habitation uh, generally anywhere. And so what does the first half of this proverb mean? For the upright will inhabit the land, meaning the word, the Hebrew word there, inhabit, can also mean dwell in, reside, etc. For the upright will inhabit the land, and those with integrity will remain in it. What is the general idea that this is teaching us? Well, in, in, it's really quite simple. So, when you have a people who are living in general in a righteous way, there is a benefit to the place in which they live. And again, if you can just think about this in a purely socially perspective, but as it relates to the moral law of God, at least the second half of, we'll say the second half of the Decalogue, um, how is a land benefited when there is a respect for parents and for the elderly? Benefit to the land? Yes. Well, or how about murder? Benefit to the land? Yes. I mean, you realize I'm not talking about the soil upon which we stand, land. Uh, how about uh, adultery? A law against adultery, moral obedience to that. I mean, we could just work our way through that second half of, that, of the Decalogue and see that there is a benefit to a civilization uh, that comes from this. So then if that is the case for uh, the righteous, the second half says the wicked will be cut off from the land. And the treacherous, which is a synonym for wicked, will be rooted out of it. What's the general idea of that? Again, as there are basic functions within a civilization, going all the way back to the idea that as God designed everything, so also everything works in this way. Um, a great case in point, if you've ever had the opportunity to, to read it, is uh, C.S. Lewis's The Abolition of Man, um, which is a notably difficult read, uh, mainly because of the references that he uses. But there is, to chase a rabbit, there is a, a, an excellent new critical edition of that uh, that is um, edited and annotated by Michael Lewis. So if you've read that years ago, and um, it starts out with literary criticism, and you wonder if he's ever going to get to a point, uh, and uh, some people never finish it for that reason, but there's a great new version of that book that's out, uh, edited by Michael Lewis. I highly recommend it. But the point that Lewis makes within that is there is a consistency as the law of God is written upon man's heart, there is a consistency across the ages, across civilizations, across lands, in which righteous behavior is rewarded, wicked behavior is punished, even for those who do not know the name of God. And so just in general, not even considering this from a redemptive or historical or redemptive perspective, we can see here the blessing that comes from that. And again, 
I don't have to tell you this, as all of us came out of the 1980s evangelical culture and the movement of the religious right, and this was sort of part of the trumpeting uh, of that, is there needs to be some kind of return socially uh, to this in order to bless the land in which we live, so forth and so on. Proverbs 3.33, The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but He blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Again, now poetically here, you see the sage is using house and dwelling synonymously here. He's just using two different words as a play on words, so to speak. But what's the general teaching? The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked. In general, God doesn't bless wickedness. He doesn't bless the wicked behavior of a people He blesses the dwelling of the righteous, again, synonymous with house, or we could say where they live. The general idea here is one of stability, as opposed to, for example, in verse uh, chapter 2, verse 21 and 22, being rooted out is a perspective of instability. And then the third proverb, Proverb 10.30, the righteous will never be removed, but the wicked will not dwell in the land. Now, this of the three Proverbs that I've given you, you can see is written in the strongest absolute. Uh, And again, as we've studied in this class before, we have to understand within literature, uh, absolutes are used not as promises, but to teach us something. So if we see that the sage is using absolutes, we should take note. Note, 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 siren, siren, siren. He's really trying to drive home a point here just like Jesus did with hyperbole, right? What would be the point that he's trying to drive home? The righteous will never be removed. The wicked will not dwell in the land. Well, again, the same general point is as God has designed His creation, so also as it functions in general, righteousness will be blessed with a stability, with a remaining. A civilization thrives on the righteous behavior of a people. A civilization crumbles under the wicked behavior of a people. So, God blesses the righteous with a stability of place and home, but so also a stability of character. A stability of Character. Proverbs 12.3 No one is established by wickedness, but the root of the righteous will never be removed. What does it mean by the root of the righteous? Yeah. Must be a crepe myrtle. Have you ever tried to dig out a crepe myrtle? Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, you try to dig out a, a crepe myrtle that's still alive, and you're like, where does this root system end? China? I mean, it's just unbelievable how far you have to dig down there. That's right. That, I, think, I think that is, at least from the commentators in looking at this, the general idea is, in fact, that. That of a plant, the root goes down. The deeper the root, the stronger uh, they are. And so it's that, that righteous character. The character of the righteous uh, runs deep 
and it is a stability. Well, it certainly could be. I mean, if, if your roots are, are, are deep, then you certainly could instill that same character, integrity, righteous uh, uh, conduct on, on the next generation. Yeah. All right, number three. The righteous are blessed by being delivered. And you'll note here that I've added from death. Delivered from death. Proverbs 11.4 Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. All right, so we, we can get the first part, right? I mean, it, you, you can't take what you own with you. You, know, all, you have all sorts of idioms that say this same proverb. They don't profit in the day of wrath. Uh, is, um, uh, uh, I've forgotten now. Sydney will have to help me with this. Uh, Dave Ramsey, the uh, Christian financial uh, feller, uh, he's got an expression that he says, you know, like, uh, when it all goes down, uh, what are people going to be looking for? And it's like not bars of gold or, you know, other things that people make a big deal. He's like, it's toilet paper and gasoline. You know, if the things go bad, people want toilet paper and gasoline. And uh, kind of the general idea is is that in the day of wrath, uh, it doesn't matter how rich you are. uh, The point is is that you're not going to be delivered by that wealth. But righteousness delivers from death. Now, how does righteousness deliver from death? And I'm just going to go ahead and help you with the low-hanging fruit. Because uh, I said at the very beginning when we were differentiating between positional righteousness and experiential righteousness, I said that within these Proverbs we will see some crossover, and I would do my best to try to point these out to you. So I'm going to go ahead and take the low-hanging fruit. Positional righteousness, by God's grace alone, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone, delivers us from eternal death. That's the greatest news in the world. Now, let's move on. To experiential righteousness. How does experiential righteousness save us from death? Tell me where you are. I'm. I only have one verse under this. Oh, okay. Going back. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, like I said before, so you're, you're going to see, you can toggle, if it were. We just need to make sure the, the typical problem is we see the positional righteousness because it's the low-hanging fruit, and oftentimes modern Christians miss the experiential. It just goes right over us, and, and so you have people running around uh, missing the whole point of integrity. Like I said in the first class, uh, see also the grace-only movement that is unfortunately wreaking havoc in some Reformed circles. But in regards to to this verse, and not referring to positional righteousness, how does experiential righteousness deliver from death? And folks, this this is really, really on-the-ground practical. Yeah. 
reading a history that I won't go into right now, but reading about this, this famous person in history who had a great life, had a major impact on a number of different areas uh, in our nation's history, and died an unusually young age of syphilis. Well, I, hmm, I wonder how uh, the righteous are delivered from death would apply to that simple example. Again, in terms of experiential righteousness, um, if, if you, you get a, a venereal disease that will kill you by virtue of your unrighteous behavior, it, you could have prevented that by virtue of integrity or by character, by moral behavior. How else? Other super practical examples. So I stunned you with my syphilis example. Nobody's like, not going to top that. <laughs> sure, yeah. All sorts of, I think to, if I'll borrow that and just pull it to a general point, all sorts of cause and effect. We live in a cause and effect world, so, so any cause and effect example would be a really good one to, to, to apply here, right? Okay, number four, on the right way. On the right way, and let me just say, sometimes when you're studying the Proverbs and you want to provide like one or two word summaries, sometimes it's hard. <laughs> and uh, so this is one of those like, well, how do you summarize these two Proverbs into an expression I came up with on the right way? You can probably come up with something better. But here's the general idea. The path, this is Proverbs 4, 18 and 19. But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. <clears throat> The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. And, and, and again, it would be easy to, to uh, whip through this with a positional righteous uh, uh, summary, but as we're all believers here and understand the gospel, let's now look at it experientially. When it uses this rather figurative language, a simile, uh, the path of the righteous, so the, the way of the righteous, is the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. Elaborate on that, that simile for me. How is the way or the path of the righteous like the light of dawn? Shining brighter and brighter. Okay. Could be, path could be referring to God's Word. What else? Yeah, they, they, they tell you in pastoral counseling that when you encounter someone who is ensnared with sin, one of the things that you have to help them with, which for most of us is just crystal clear, is you have to help them understand 
the right way and how that tends to clear things up. But if you're, for example, a habitual liar, uh, that, that makes for a crooked path, doesn't it? Because you come over here and you go, now I've got to remember, did I lie about this? And you tilt over here and, and so you become sort of like a, a, a pinball, so to speak. And, and you can insert whatever sin you want to here, but sin clouds the way. Sin darkens the path. But if you are living for the Lord and living in obedience to His commands, life's pretty simple, isn't it? And you say, well, no, I'm not sure about simple. No, I mean the path. I'm not saying that there aren't complexities to life, but what I'm saying is, is you're not debating over whether or not um, infidelity in marriage is right or wrong. You're not debating over whether taking the life of the innocent is right or wrong. You're not debating in your mind whether being honest in a business transaction is right or wrong. It's really pretty simple, right? Even though life is full of complexities, and even though life is, deals us all sorts of twists and turns, righteousness provides a pathway for which we don't have to worry about the difference between right and wrong. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a great way to put it. The distinction of black and white is, is that path becomes straight in the sense that there's a clear distinction between black and white, right and wrong. That's good. That's good. Look at the second proverb, uh, the second half of that. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. Uh, again, that just elaborating on what we've been discussing here is that it's very easy to stumble in the way that is paved with sin, because sin is darkness. Proverbs eleven three: The integrity of the upright guides them but the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. How does integrity guide the upright? Note the sage is playing here on two different words. It's one of his favorite things to do is just as he'll characterize a person as righteous, uh, meaning they're uh, identified as that one, so also he'll use other words, in this case upright, same general idea, but then what the sage will do is he will couple behavior with that identification. So this is someone who is characterized as being upright, and we see it in the flow of their behavior, specifically their integrity. How does that integrity guide them? Again, it's what we've talked about before. In terms of sin leading us astray, so uh, righteousness leads us in the right direction as God has designed. Number five, needs met. Needs met. Look at Proverbs 10.3. The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, but He thwarts the craving of the wicked. I've lost count on how many times I've said this, but I have to say it on Proverbs like this. Proverbs aren't promises. 
I mean, you know, how many times have you heard me say this? Um, how many of us know faithful, born-again believers who are living for the Lord, who are struggling in areas of persecution, perhaps even famished? All you have to do is read just a little bit about the persecuted church, and you know that this is not a promise. So, again, I'm not intending to beat you over the head with that, but because it is wisdom literature, it is a general truth. And so the Lord does not let the righteous go hungry. In general, means that those who walk uprightly, God provides for them. But note the active verb in the second clause. Who thwarts the craving? And in this sense, it's not just that they're eating, it's that they are hungry, they are craving, the wicked are craving to be fed, and who is actively opposed to them? God is. That's right. God is thwarting even their craving, let alone their needs being met. Number six, um, blessed... Also, what word do you use here? Proverbs 10.6, Blessings are on the head of the righteous, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. Again, this is a fairly straightforward proverb, but I love the interchange here. Note that the blessings are where on the righteous? On their head. Um, that is a fascinating Hebrew expression. As the head was the place of anointing. The head was the place of blessing. Uh, where were, uh, figuratively speaking, the, uh, the Hebrews to uh, maintain the knowledge of God's law and word upon the head, or in, in this case, the, the, the forehead? Um, in Revelation, there are two examples used of the head or the forehead. Uh, there is God's bestowing of His uh, noted favor upon the elect, and then the, uh, those who are unredeemed of the 666. And so you see all of this imagery going all the way through the Old Testament into the New. The general idea, the Hebraic thought here, is that the head is a place of honor, but it is also a place of revealing. If you see that David is the anointed, and by the way, a theme that you see over and over and over again in the Psalms, that emphasis of David's anointing, he was anointed on his head, not his feet, we might say. And so God's blessing are upon that place of honor of the righteous. And then note here, then the sage then transitions from the head to what? To the mouth. And so it's not a, a true parallelism, uh, so to speak. He's playing with the imagery of head and mouth, but now instead of the place of honor, God bestowing the honor upon someone's head, now we see that the wicked are revealing something, and where is that coming out of? It's coming out of their, their mouth. We hear an echo of this when Jesus is preaching on the Beatitudes and He talks about that which comes out of the heart as opposed to what goes in. 
And out of the heart comes, in this case, what? Not violence. Yeah. So what the sage is doing there is he's now telling us something about who they are and what reveals them. And it's not the violence that comes out, but there is this hiddenness to it. It's, it's secret. They are holding back. And again, the idea is, is a lack of integrity. The idea here is a lack of concealment that betrays a wicked intent and a wicked heart. And so the, the mouth is saying so to speak, you know, I'm your friend, I'm your buddy, I always tell you the truth, you can count on me, I'm telling you everything that you need to know. And what, the righteous person's going, I don't think so. I, I think the stuff that's coming out of this is concealing something that's to my detriment, right? Concealing, in this case, violence. But the righteous... God's blessing is upon them. They are, uh, so to speak, anointed with God's blessing. Number seven, desires granted. Desires granted. Before I read this proverb, I don't know if I have mentioned this to you before, uh, so I'll add this as a caveat. Um, Proverbs are not promises. What the wicked dreads will come upon him, but the desire of the righteous will be granted. When the tempest passes, the wicked is no more, but the righteous is established forever. Right, so first of all, we know that Proverbs aren't promises. We know that they are general truths. We also know that the sage is employing hyperbole here, but in general, what does this teach us about the righteous and what they desire? And I might add, just as a, if this helps you at all, the answer is found in the area, for example, of why most modern Christians misinterpret Jesus' Beatitudes that helps you at all as you think about this. The desire of the righteous will be granted. Yeah, that's exactly right. What, what this, this sage is doing here, and, and it's, you can pick up on the idea here in the first clause, the wicked dreads. Well, is something that you dread, is that obvious to everybody? No, it's, an, it's internal, right? I can't tell right now if you're dreading uh, the next scratchy sound on the chalkboard. I don't know that. It may be bothering you. Let's try my fingernails. No, just kidding. Um, but dread is internal. He is knowing, he is dreading that something will come upon him. But then note, the desire of the righteous will be granted. So also it is an internal attitude, both dread and desire. So the sage is playing with these two ideas, but both of them are dictated by their behavior. 
the wicked is characterized as, quote-unquote, the wicked, right? Meaning that they are wicked enough in their behavior that they are characterized as such, and the righteous are characterized by their righteousness. And so, when you dread something and you are characterized as someone of wicked behavior, that affects your attitude, doesn't it? You dread because your heart, your thoughts, your mind are driven by evil. But the desire of the righteous, to Hilda's point, is driven, is directed by their own righteousness. So this is not, again, I know this proverb can be used in the prosperity gospel and can be taken out of context all the time, and of course we wouldn't do that. Uh, but what we do need to know that is that it does in fact direct our desires. If you are living righteously, it affects your attitude. If you are living wickedly, it affects your attitude. And by attitude, I mean that internal, internal voice of dread, or desire. The second part of that, the tempest passes, the wicked is no more, but the righteous established forever. The general idea there is that this is how God works. He will bring it to pass. Uh, the, 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 the righteous are, in fact, the fulfillment of their desire comes by God's provision. Number eight, hope yielding. Hope yielding. Proverbs 10.28, the hope of the righteous brings joy, but the expectation of the wicked will perish. Again, it's not a, an exact parallelism, but the second half of that clause is that the expectation, what that uh, wicked person desires, what their desires uh, will in fact perish. But look at the first clause. The hope of the righteous brings joy. Why does the hope of the righteous bring joy. Okay, we'll do we'll break it up here. So, we'll do the low-hanging fruit first. Positionally, how does positional righteous, the hope of position our positional righteous bring joy? We'll do that one first. That's the easy one. Yep, and through the spirit by virtue of uh, our salvation, we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Fruit, fruit is yielded by virtue of that, and joy is a fruit of that. Experientially, how then does the hope of the righteous bring joy? Yeah, I think that's a great way to put the word dwelling. That's very helpful. Yeah, to captivate our imaginations, our thoughts, our minds, to think on these things. Uh, the Apostle Paul puts it, uh, our, our hope by virtue of the righteous uh, way in which we're conducting ourselves is, in fact, uh, beneficial to us, you could say. And thinking upon that can indeed uh, bring joy. That's good. Number nine, heritage. A heritage of righteousness. Uh, 
Be assured, this is Proverbs eleven twenty one. Be assured an evil person will not go unpunished, but the offspring of the righteous will be delivered. Okay, uh, can the, an evil person go and not be uh, punished? Not forever. That's right. So we can think of it in, in, in the sense that both positionally and experientially, uh, we can know that there is indeed a judgment day and all things will be reconciled unto God on that day. Experientially, how may we think about this? The offspring of the righteous will be delivered. Again, in terms of a general truth, not a promise, of course, a general truth, the general idea is what? Yeah, so first of all, now we've got a context, don't we? Children, so the implication is, is, is the home and teaching and training, so forth and so on. Somebody said something over here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the things that, that is, uh, uh, I, I say before, uh, in, in terms of uh, talking to parents about uh, infant baptism, for example, and the sign and seal of the covenant and, and the co- emphasis of, of, of uh, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and that, that covenant blessing of God, oftentimes in that conversation, something will come up is, is consider the blessing that God has given to your child through you. That your child is blessed to be in a Christian home. That your child is blessed to be raised by parents who fear the Lord. That your child is blessed uh, to have parents who are in God's Word and love God's Word and, and so forth and so on. Uh, even the, even the, the act of uh, bringing children to church and, um, and the faithfulness therein. All of this uh, can flow through how God works through our righteous behavior as His children. And so the offspring of the righteous will be, li- be delivered uh, from an uh, experiential standpoint. It's by that influence, right? Number 10, desires fulfilled, expectation leading to destruction. I'm not even sure what I was trying to say there. Proverbs 11.23, the desire, oh, I remember now, the desire of the righteous ends only in good. The expectation of the wicked in wrath. Uh, so the general idea is what? what? What's the general idea of that first clause? The desire of the righteous ends only in good. The general truth being what? True. But just take it even more simpler than that. If you desire what is right, then what is right will be done, theoretically, and that which is right, God blesses. You can just take all these simple little steps that oftentimes uh, seems seems lacking from our modern dialogue, the general idea there is that, that because the righteous desire what is righteous, so that ends in what is right or what is good. Number 11, reward. 
reward. Proverbs eleven eighteen: The wicked earns deceptive wages, but one who sows righteousness gets a sure reward. We're going to end on, on this one today, uh, but... First of all, let's understand what it's talking about. I'll say before we discuss this, note how the sage is employing two terms and similar. For the first is earn, you work a job, you earn income, right? The sowing is the idea of giving. And so if, you thought, if it's helpful to think this in terms of financial terms, the wicked earns deceptive wages, one who is wicked, that, the one who is characterized by wicked behavior, though they may work or though they may not work, how they gain money is done so in a deceptive way. Right? So uh, someone that uh, comes and says, I'm in, I'm in great need, and uh, they get money from me, and then in turn they really weren't in need, it was a deception. That would be a good example. But the second half is most important. One who sows righteousness gets a sure reward. This is just very practical. What, does it, what would be an example of sowing righteousness? Okay, folks, this is really, this is really basic. Doing good. It's that simple. To sow righteousness experientially is to do good to people, right? To do good to others. All right, so, so in doing good to others, how is that like sowing? Yeah, we don't, we don't think at all that, that doing that good somehow merits a salvific favor with God. We, we know that that comes by grace. But what we do know is that when we do good, and when we do good to, to others, that in fact, it's like sowing seed in the ground, and fruit comes from that. And, and there are all sorts of um, secular uh, I call them common grace examples. Uh, one is, is that you, you've heard of the pay it forward movement. Everybody know the pay it forward movement? Okay, what, what is that? What's the, the pay, it, pay it forward? Yeah, yeah. So you, you, you do something uh, that, that's nice for somebody else. You pay for their meal before they get up there, and um, they get up there and you say, you know, ah, I wish I'd ordered more. Um, no, just kidding. Uh, but, but there's all sorts of general ideas here, and I'm not saying that that's the example of this, but what I'm saying is that in common terms, we understand that there is an effect, an influence for righteousness, and how does that righteousness get a sure reward? Yeah, it's, it's twofold, right? So think about it this way. Uh, Jesus uh, was asked, what is the greatest commandment? And He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And He said, then what? And He said, and the others like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so in general, we can see here that God blesses 
the righteous behavior, but so also there is a blessing to our neighbor that in fact may be reciprocal and may not, we don't know, but favor upon others is indeed a sure reward. And so God blesses as we bless uh, Him in our righteous behavior as well as our neighbor. All right, so we are uh, at point 11, and we'll finish this up uh, next week. I just want to end next week on, uh, I think it'll be a really fun topic. Uh, It's a common grace topic of civilization and how civilization uh, is how it responds to righteousness and wickedness. I think it'll be a really fun discussion, and we'll get to that next week. Let me pray for us. Our gracious God in heaven, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that we are indeed positionally righteous by your grace through faith in Christ. And we thank you that you call us, as you are the one who defines what is and is not righteous, that you call us to walk according to that righteousness, that we are to live as we are, and that we are to live it out in this world. We pray as your children that we would be faithful to live righteously, righteously before you first and also before our neighbor. May our good deeds, in fact, be a light that shines, as Jesus said, showing you are indeed a glorious God, and so also blessing our neighbor. We ask now that as we gather across the street to worship you, that you would prepare our hearts and our minds, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.